0: Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Great to have you back with us in the podcast edition. As always on Thursdays, my great friend and one of the greatest radio producers of all time, Dwayne Generalismo Patterson. Certainly one of the oldest. (laughs) I mean, that is, that is, I mean, we're both in sort of a young person's business, right? I mean, in, in both phases here.
1: Um. So, so the funny part about this, uh, just just a quick side note story. So this morning, Hugh does a half hour interview with Kellyanne Conway, right, on her new memoir. Yeah, and interesting. Unlike, and unlike every other interview that she gives, where it's the same three little uh, uh, highlighted you know, clips, because no one reads the book, it's the same three clips about her fight with her husband. Um, you know, Trump lost, and you know whatever whatever the. The, the same thing that she has to talk about a hundred times in every interview. Hugh reads the books, right? He right. reads the books. So this was a 30 hour tour or 30 hour, 30 minute tour de force over her you know, entire career. And so she calls in and people forget when we were back onto the mornings, um, back in 1995, or I'm sorry, back in 2000, when we started the show, um, we were on in Gallagher's old shift and back then Kellyanne would come on. She was a weekly guest. She came on every week and did polls. In fact, uh, she was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick and we remember she had to take a couple weeks off because she got married to George Conway and she became Kellyanne Conway. Uh, so she calls in and, you know, I answered her phone studio is and she says, Dwayne, how are you? And she's, I haven't talked to you in forever. So we got, Uh, We we got to catch up a little bit because I talked to her, you know, a thousand times back in the old days, and uh, I said, you know, I just get I just got done talking to Pompeo, you know, weekly guests come and go, they become they become uh, CIA directors, they become secretaries of state, right, and then they go by the wayside. I'm still here. I talk to pollsters every week. They go on to you know launch presidential campaigns and 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 win going to the white house for four years and then they go out you know they they go by the wayside i'm still here um and she she says so what does that say about you and i said i'm a career underachiever (laughs) (laughs) i mean we just we just had this conversation literally 45 minutes or an hour ago
0: so you're kind of like jeff spicoli is what you're is what you're saying
1: (laughs) yes i'm 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 the guy I'm the guy ordering the pizza in in uh, in English class or whatever it is. You're
0: the guy whacking the van shoe up against your head and saying, "I'm so wasted." Yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> hey, I'm a Californian. Hey. We, that, that, this is the
1: state for it, right?
0: And, and you know what's just sad about this? Because I'm just realizing this as I'm as I'm using this reference. That movie came out that, 40 years ago, dude. <laughs> Yeah, you and I are about (laughs) the only ones listening to this podcast that have any idea what this reference is is about. Jeff Spicoli rules. That's all I can say. Uh, All right, so moving on to
1: you realize you and I are now older than Ray Walston was when
0: he did that movie. (laughs) Yeah, you've heard of the um, you've uh, uh, oh gosh, it's a uh, Wilford Brimley line, right? It was, yeah. it was, uh, have, you know, have you, are you now older than Wilfred Brumley was when he made Cocoon? Because he's actually yes. younger than you'd think he was when he made Cocoon. Yes. Now he's since passed away, of course. And, right. uh, but, uh, but yeah, wasn't, I
1: wasn't he like in his early 50s when he did it
0: that? He was like 52, I think, when he made Cocoon. Yeah.
1: We, 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 that, that's, that's well in our rearview mirrors.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 We're, well, we're, we're very much into the get off my damn lawn and turn down your radio stage yes. of life here. But, yes. uh, all right. Moving on from that, though, uh, from that depressing start, let us move into um, old age in a completely different context. Actually, <laughs> actually it's a perfect segue. Uh, see, I was,
1: I was trying, I was trying to see if you were going to pick yeah. up that vibe I was laying down.
0: Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm too old to pick up on those segues anymore. So, um, new Harvard Harris poll. Now, when I first wrote about this Harvard Harris poll yesterday, it was because the the Hill had you know an advanced look at this, and they focused on the approval rating which is understandable they they focused on the approval rating because that's usually the top line of all these things and you know Joe Biden's uh, approval rating was terrible the only issue that he was at uh, above water on was covid and that's basically because uh, he hasn't managed to screw it up recently courts are actually preventing him from screwing it up right. and so um he's benefiting from uh being from losing basically in that in that particular thing but that wasn't yeah, really the big news
1: no, I and understand. And I'm not going to stop you too long here. Um, wasn't this the same one that we got news of yesterday that was kind of an outlier in the other direction? No, that was that, uh, the
0: Reuters. That was Reuters. The, 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 the Reuters Ipsos poll, right? That was the Reuters Ipsos poll, which had been an outlier to the plus side, right? Because it and only had him at minus eight, which was one of the which was one of the kindest poll series up until yesterday. When they put right. it at minus twenty three,
1: and 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 so now the poll is the equivalent of the Fed doing a couple uh, half point interest rate hikes on it.
0: It's now down the other direction. It right really now. is. Yeah, I mean a big reversal in Reuters, and it's it, it's still yeah. We have to wait to see if that's a if that's a a leading indicator of a of a, a dramatic change or if this was just one uh, one hey, outlier.
1: Every poll that I see that has them in the mid thirties, all I can think of is. We're on our way to the 20s.
0: Yeah, and this might explain why um, the Harvard Harris Caps poll, the full poll, got released. Uh, I think late last night or early this morning, and it has. It, it, you got to actually scroll down quite a ways to this, and I didn't. I didn't know this until I saw it from Charles C W Cook over at the corner. Um, but they do ask the mental fitness questions. Two mental fitness questions from Harvard Harris Caps. The, the the subject which shall not be uttered in polite company for, for is, the most part. Is he too old? Well, there's two questions. One is, is Biden mentally fit to serve as president of the United States or do you have doubts about his fitness for office? The second question is, do you think Biden is showing he is too old uh, to be president or do you think he is showing he is fit to be president? Now, it's two different questions. Really, it's about the same issue, but it's two different questions so you can get an idea of where people are at. On the first one, is he mentally fit to, uh, enough to serve as president? 53% say they have doubts <laughs> about his mental fitness. Only 47% of Americans, um, and I'm not sure if this is Americans American voters. I, I, I really should probably uh, track that down. But 47% of Americans, only 47, think he's mentally fit to serve okay. as president.
1: Now, I ha- I haven't gone down the cross tabs like, uh, like you have. Um, is this broken down by party?
0: It's broken change. down by all. They actually have really nice chart. I mean, this is a this is a, uh, a this is a series of slides, so it doesn't have a whole lot of text to it. It's just a series of slides. This particular right. slide, it's all on one slide here, but they also have the cross tabs as part of the slide, right? So here are some interesting highlights from that yeah. question, and we haven't even gotten to the to the other one, which I think is yeah, actually yeah, yeah, worse. Yeah. Okay, nineteen percent of Democrats have doubts as to whether or not he's mentally fit for one, office. One in five. 1 out of 5 Democrats. 1 out of 5 Democrats. Um yeah. only 67% of black voters um think he's fit for office. Now 67% sounds high except that he really needs to get like 90% of that demo <laughs> in order to win an election. What
1: was what was what was that uh, what was that uh, African American vote against Mitt Romney in 2012?
0: 90 92? 92,
1: 93.
0: I think it was 92. 92 or 93, but it was in that range. Yeah. Six only 67% think Joe Biden is fit for office. Here's a really interesting one. Only 47% of women think that Joe Biden is mentally fit for office. 53% doubt his mental fitness. (laughs) Urban voters, 6139. Um which sounds good, but again, this is a demo that usually Democrats have to carry by something other than twenty two uh, twenty two point gap
1: well, and the sixty one that's the remaining people in in urban areas that have not been carjacked or
0: mugged yet <laughs> yeah right yeah exactly um Hispanic, Latino, um, Spanish that should origin. Be cratering. That should be cratering. actually on mental fitness. He's still above water, but not by much. Fifty-two forty-eight. Right. So that's, oh, wow. that's nearly an even split. That, but that's mental fitness. Okay. That's one aspect of this. Showing he's too old.
1: <laughs>
0: now let's let's <laughs> see how let's see what the demos are on 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 the, on, on the percentage of uh people who think that biden is showing that he's too old uh, overall it's overall it's like it's it's six out
1: of ten right and and this
0: it's 62 percent overall but let's i mean which is bad that's horrible right only 38 percent think that he's showing that he's not too old right yeah um 29% of Democrats thinks that he's showing that he's too old for office. Um,
1: Give give me that number
0: again. 29%. Nearly 3 in 10 Democrats think he's too old.
1: So so 3 out of 10 Democrats.
0: 3 out of 10 Democrats, right? 62% of women think that he's showing that he's too old for office. In fact, there is no gender gap on this. It's it's 63, 37 among men, 62, 38 among women. There's no gender gap. There's no gender gap on either of these questions, by the way, I should, I should point that out. Only 50% of black voters. It's a 50, 50 split among black voters between showing that he's too old and not showing that he's too old. Um, 57% of Hispanic voters think that he's showing that he's too old uh, to be in office. Uh, Fifty three percent of urban voters think that he's showing that he's too old to be in office. Uh, suburban voters at 64 um, percent. I mean, these are amazing demos on a key question, not just for the midterms, but don't let's not forget that the White House and Democrats are all saying, oh, he's going to run for a second term in office. I this mean, is,
1: no, this, this really? no
0: this. No, this
1: is this is Billy Crystal explaining the difference between mostly dead and all dead. When, yeah, when, when you've got these numbers, you're all dead. There's nothing left but going through the pockets
0: for loose change, right? Right. And and look, I mean, I, I, it, it's not that we haven't been here before. I mean, Charles C.W. Cook, when he wrote this up at the corner, which is where I saw it, and I want to give Charles, you know, full credit for this. I, I link him and I and I quote him in the, in uh, in my post too. He calls this unrecoverable. Basically, he says this is. Once people think you're old and mentally unfit, you're toast. Now, that would be true if you don't do anything to counter that. And and in my post, I I actually clip the I have a clip of the uh, the second the moment in the second uh, Reagan Mondale debate. You know, which is the classic clip. I mean, I think it it might be Reagan's finest. Moment of wit, anyway, when he was I mean, he had plenty of fine moments as he president. He took the
1: attack that everybody knew was coming, and he and and he was very winsome about it, and just turned it on his head.
0: Right. And this is where he says, "I I promise not to hold my my opponent's youth and inexperience youth. against him," right. <laughs> which even Mondale starts cracking up on stage. And later he said that was the moment when I knew I'd lost the election. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And because
1: um, because Reagan showed that, regardless of how old he was. He was still with
0: it. Yep. He was still there. He was he was still able to be in command. And then he followed this up. And most people don't remember this until they see the clip. And I didn't remember it until I saw the clip. Um, with a quote from either, and he wasn't sure whether it was Cicero or Seneca, about how uh, a, a society without input from its elders would uh, would be lost. And which was, it's, a, it's a great quote. But I mean, it showed that this is a guy who is a deep thinker. Or at least a deep researcher, because right? this was clearly a prepared response. They knew he knew right. he was going to get this after the first debate, which in which he did look a little bit uh, tired. I, I would I would say, um, so he prepared for it, and and you know he went back to he went back to the classics of Western civilization to to make his argument, which is you know just a great way to demonstrate that you have a firm grasp on uh, with the you know, right style.
1: With the right smile
0: and the twinkle in his
1: eye, you yeah.
0: know, he he had it all. So let me ask you this, because I do think that theoretically you can recover from this. You can recover from this impression. But does anybody think <laughs> Joe Biden has anything in the tank uh, like no. uh, to, to, to pull something like that off?
1: He, he can't recover from this. Why? Because otherwise, he wouldn't have gone 103 days since his last uh, one-on-one sit-down media interview.
0: With this, Holt, which didn't go well. And it was a softball, you know, Super Bowl interview to boot. And it didn't go well. They don't trust him.
1: Look at what he just did in Southeast Asia. He gets asked a basic question that is on everybody's mind. He goes to South Korea. He goes to Japan. Um the, the, the 800 pound gorilla in the corner when he goes on a Southeast Asia trip is the, the specter of a rising, um, uh, threat in, in, with, with the Chinese Communist Party. And what's going to happen when they eventually try to move on to Taiwan? And so the question was asked of him directly, a question to be fair and to give him credit. I believe he answered the right way which is, yes, we are going to defend uh, Taiwan. You have to say you're going to defend Taiwan. Um, and this is not the first time he said it. This is the third time he said it, which is basically at war with his own administration. His administration walked out all day and said, absolutely not. No, no, um, that's not what he said. Our policy has not changed. And, and Joe Biden said our policy hadn't changed. Well, that's not what Joe Biden said. And the next day, when the media in a different venue—I think he was in a uh, different, uh, different uh, area in Japan—he he, it was it was the the, the corner or the the, the four corner uh, whatever it was. And So he's lined up with three other uh, state leaders, and the press starts shouting the question at him. Uh, you know, are, are you sticking by this? Because the White House is, is walking back your comments. And it was like he was in a hostage video. He says, um, no, I meant what I said. You know, I, 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 our policy has not changed. Right. I'm not going to go into it any further. It's horrible, Ed. He looks and sounds horrible. He came back from his trip after a 18-hour flight, gets off at Andrews, goes over to the White House so he can address the shooting in Evalde, Texas. And he gets in front of the the camera in the Roosevelt room and he kind of mutters around for seven minutes and then says, why can't we attack the gun, the gun lobby? But he looked and sounded like he was about 400 years old. He looked old and tired.
2: Maybe perhaps,
1: maybe perhaps an octogenarian or an octogenarian to be. After that long of a flight, maybe you don't stick them in front of a camera with no sleep and and you know not make them look older which is, than he really is. Which is you, yeah, you I mean, reinforce the point of the poll.
0: It, which is yeah, it reinforces the impression that people are getting yeah, right. I, and and exactly. this was and this poll was taken before then, and it sure. certainly didn't help matters uh, that this that this took place afterwards. But I mean. Uh, This is, this goes to something else that the Washington Post reported even, I think it was before that press conference, may have been at the same time, which was that there are some Democrats now that are complaining that the White House is too quick to walk back statements. They should let Biden be Biden, basically, is what the argument is, you know, that the walkbacks are embarrassing the president and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be so quick on the trigger to do the walkbacks, which is sort of like blaming, uh, blaming the cure for the disease. I mean, (laughs) who's? Who's running the show? Yeah. Right. I mean that that's a great that's a great point to it. Is that if Biden isn't running the show, who is? It, you know, it's President Klein that's running the show and clearly they they see the need to to keep contradicting their own president. Now this is not to say that this didn't happen in the previous administration because it did. Um but I don't think that there was a compass mentis. Um <laughs> you know factor to this i think everybody understood that donald that donald trump was just you know a loose cannon when it came to extemporaneous uh speaking and that uh he wasn't probably not terribly well read into the nuances of policy this is a guy who's been immersed in policy for 50 years <laughs> he's been in co- he's been in washington dc for 50 years there's right. no way that you can't say that he doesn't understand what the actual nuances of our Taiwan policy is because he actually wrote a Washington Post op ed 20 years ago, scolding George Bush for getting it wrong in almost exactly the same way that Biden has repeatedly gotten it wrong. So, over the last if the White half. House,
1: so if the White House is walking it back for the third time and forcing him to answer it to the White House's will the, the following day. After this guy is supposedly the foreign policy gravitas pick for Barack Obama. Right. Right. That, that's you know, if, if that's the case, then what is that saying about Joe Biden? Is it saying he's wrong and it, his own White House thinks he's wrong or is it is it Joe Biden is not in full touch with his capacities anymore because he is he is askance uh, uh, with, with with all of his own advisors? It's actually kind of frightening. If you're the Prime Minister of Japan, right, you were in that joint press conference. The so Prime Minister of Japan was in that joint press conference, right? And Joe Biden said we made a commitment, we're going to live by that commitment. Yes, we're going to we're going to come to Taiwan's aid if it comes down to it. And then the next day he says no. What what exactly what exactly does the Prime Minister of Japan think about this, and how how does he prepare? How does he plan? How how does he how does he make political calculations for the the growing threat of of um, China, knowing what the U.S. policy is? Nobody knows what the U.S. policy is right now.
0: Right, right, and and I think that this is. I mean, there's strategic ambiguity, and then there's st- strategic incoherence. And it's, I think that what you have yeah, got a strategic incoherence in it's, this administration. It's
1: strategic confundity. I mean, there's just right. there's no there there's it's one thing to to signal to China, we're not going to tell you what's going to happen to you if you do, you know, X, Y, Z. That's strategic ambiguity. But what should not be a, 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 ambiguous is telling them that you are going to act, right? Right. We're right. going to act in our choosing. We're whether it's whether it's it's tomahawks, whether it's nukes, whether it's any number of th- things. You know, Whatever. I'm just saying whatever, whatever our, our weapon of choice and how we do it and how we strike and what we do to counter that remains up to us. And you're going to find out when you find out. But make no mistake. If you move on Taiwan, you have just you have just declared war in the United States, uh, you know, by. You know, th- yeah, that's 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 how you kind of handle that and still have you know uh, ambiguity. But that's not what Biden did. You now no longer know if we're going to act on Taiwan. The president said yes three times. We're going to act if they invade Ch- uh, Taiwan. The White House says not so fast. Okay, who's the commander in chief? Who's the president? Who's talking to Congress? What what exactly what exactly happened if if China were to invade Taiwan tomorrow? Ed Morrissey, what would the U.S. do on Saturday? I have no idea. Right. And the president just just iterated what we would do.
0: Actually, I have I have a pretty good idea. We would probably do nothing because the people at the White House who keep contradicting Trump on this would probably keep contradicting Trump uh, on on any action that we would take. You, you mean Biden? I'm sorry, I did mean Biden. Maybe yeah. I'm too old for this job. <laughs> maybe I maybe I'm the Jeff Spicoli of the blogging world. I don't know, Dwayne. But, but what I'm
1: saying I'm is, I'm so wasted but what i'm saying is 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 just 3 days ago on the on the the, the 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 biggest takeaway of the entire trip the biggest news poll from the entire trip and 3 days later if said event does happen we actually don't know what we would do we we don't know if we would respond or not because right. we don't know we don't know who's running things
0: yep all right Speaking of running things and speaking of the Uvalde shooting we got to get to this because and we only have sure. a few more minutes left. Uh, terrible 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 thing here in in Texas um the the mass shooting of I think it's uh, 20 or 21 victims um in Uvalde Texas um uh, believe that the perp was an 18 year old who broke into a school shot up everybody in, in a single classroom and then I'm eventually was killed. I mean, it looks like yeah.
1: another common denominator. Does there's does lots, of, lots it, of signals that could have been picked up. Lots on. of
0: red flags, a couple of which were picked up on, but there wasn't much that people could do about it or did do. Um, there's also some questions as to how quickly the police responded. There's a lot of different. There's a lot of different nuances to this, but sure. but at the bottom line, you've got, uh, I think it's 18 children dead, it might be guess, 20 children, think, and two I adults. Well, I
1: thought it was nineteen and two. I
0: thought it was nineteen and nineteen two right and two. Now. Nineteen and two. You've you've got almost two dozen children dead
3: right. uh, who
0: should be alive, who should be out playing in the playground today. Um you've got a couple of teachers or a couple of adults who should be out there supervising. They're they're all dead. Um obviously a tremendously emotional issue for a lot of people. Um And apparently also an opportunity for exploitation for a few. And I'm not just talking about Chuck Schumer. On all sides. On on all sides. On all sides, right? I'm not just talking about Chuck Schumer, but I am talking about Robert Francis O'Rourke, who showed up with a camera crew at a press conference, not a a campaign stop, but a press conference uh, at which law enforcement, including Governor Greg Abbott, was trying to inform the community of Uvalde of of the uh, findings thus far in the investigation. And this was not a policy event. This was not a campaign event. This was a briefing for the people, including some of the families of those who were, you know, families and friends of those who were killed. Uh, Robert, Robert Beto O'Rourke. I refuse
1: to call a grown man Beto. Beto in Spanish means crash hole.
0: It does today. It did yesterday. Got up and started berating Abbott. Now, you know, O'Rourke, of course, is running against Abbott in in November for uh, governor. Not for not for long. Well, he's he's still going to be running against him. He's oh, not he's, going to win. He's, oh, he's going to be
1: running, but at at this rate, if he keeps pulling stunts like this, he's going to be like Brian Kemp versus uh, versus. Um, uh, Uh, David Perdue I mean it's going to be like a 50 point spread I mean this this is how this is how you make yourself a pariah
0: yeah the um I I believe it was the mayor of Uvalde yes told him to leave and called him a sick son of a bitch um which he is um this is a guy who's desperate for attention. Who's desperate it for any kind of traction. Staged.
1: It, the yeah, he had a camera crew staged. with him.
0: It was obviously staged. He had a camera crew with him. There was a reporter who was in
1: the first row, one section over, who said that right before the event started, there were two people in the front row that got up and left like seconds before it started so that Beta could come and sit in the, uh, in, in the front row. With his with this camera person, so the whole thing was a staged, plotted, planned act. This was not. This was not Robert Francis O'Rourke showing up as concerned citizen to give his support and just not being able to take it anymore, and then standing up and and opining. The whole thing was a staged, yep. planned campaign stunt. Yep. And yep. you 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 pull a stunt like that when there are still parents that just woke up and or they probably didn't even sleep last night but they're but they're looking around this is the first full day of not having their kids around well okay it,
0: it, i it, mean it's, it's i mean stagger is in staggeringly poor taste it's it's in hugely poor taste I, you know i i think he is a, a grotesque human being for uh, for exploiting this in the way that he did now i think we're way beyond the point where you can say, well, you got to wait till the funerals are over before you start discussing the policy. We don't do that anymore. We haven't done it for years. And I understand that. So this that's not what this was. I understand that you're going to have these arguments in Congress, right, over, you know, we need to pass some sort of law. And both sides are going to have their their arguments at the ready, you know, within minutes or a couple of hours after an incident like this because they're used to it. This is something that's been going on for for some time. And the reason why it doesn't never gets beyond that is because of two reasons. One is that most of this is just posturing. They're not actually talking with each other about things that you could actually get done. And two, the solutions to this are very complicated and difficult to deal with and will un- make some people very unhappy, especially if you're dealing with mental mental illness and um, and involuntary commitment under certain circumstances. It's going to make a lot of people very unhappy. Right. Um so they don't want to do that, but posturing is cheap. I get that in Washington D.C., but this wasn't even a policy statement. That you know, this wasn't even a policy argument. Was first off, it wasn't a policy forum. But it was no. O'Rourke wasn't even engaging in a policy discussion. He was there to just uh, demagogue and and to do his Howard Beale impression. In front of the media that were gathered there, while Abbott is executing the, the the role of his office in terms of being the top law enforcement. If you want to think of you know the executive branch as law enforcement, and so you know in in a sense he's the top law enforcement officer. You know, AG Ken Paxton probably would be the 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 the, uh, the, the most. It was really a
1: dual. It was really a dual purpose. It was it was yeah. the, it was basically a a, a news conference or a press conference update. And at the same right. time, at the same time, it was also to be to be the
0: consoler in chief. Well, right? right. I mean, was there a political aspect to it? Yeah, to that extent. I would say yes, to that extent. But it wasn't a campaign stop. No. And he wasn't no. there as a candidate. He was there as governor. This was a guy who was doing his job, not yes. not being on the campaign trail. And and O'Work exploited this tragedy for his own political purposes, which is just about as scumbaggish as you can possibly get in a situation like this. I mean, it is absolutely despicable. That is a word I don't like to use, except in in in, in really well warranted situations. This is one like of those situations. One, yes, it's despicable.
1: This this is not just this is not just um, you know being a dummy and being uh, bad at politics. This is this is you know this is. Hugh th- used to refer to Bill Maher. Uh, versus other people in media as the difference between being wrong and rotten. Bill Maher was rotten about it. Um, when, when you look at, um, Stacey Abrams, when you look at all, all, all sorts of different political candidates that we may not like, they're, they can be nefarious. They can be, they can be kind of crazy. They can be nutty. They can do all sorts of weird things. There's a difference between being wrong on issues and being wrong about stuff and being rotten. Um, yep. This yep. this was a pretty rotten thing
0: to do. It's an absolutely rotten thing to do, and I hope that uh, I'm here in Texas. I'll be voting. <laughs> I wasn't going to vote for a anyway, but I, I, I am I am sincerely hoping that some of the people who were considering a vote for a will now uh, take a very close look at now, this guy and
1: correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall, and you know, I peruse thousands of news cuts uh, on in, in a monthly basis, right? I mean, you, right. you see, my, you see my cut sheets. You know how much I go through the news cycle and and pull uh, audio and video. I haven't had a chance to go back and pull it yet, but I'm almost certain uh, six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago, maybe three months at the outside. Robert Francis O'Rourke. Did some kind of a, a press avail, or he was at some kind of a grip and grin uh, campaign stop, and he totally reversed himself on guns, and he said he said something to the effect of, "Well, we're we're, we're not going to take your guns, uh, you know. Right. I'm I'm a I'm a Second Amendment guy. Yeah. Remember? Do, do you do you remember him kind of? I do. I do." And and we on the right all made fun of him because we knew he wasn't sincere. What he was doing is realizing, hey, I'm running for governor of Texas. I can't be against guns here. Right. Right?
0: Right. It, 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 am I remembering that right? Uh, you are remembering it correctly. And I'm certain that Texans are going to remember it too. All right. So now
1: all of a sudden he's back to the good old, good old Robert Francis O'Rourke?
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. he's he's back to the he's back to the pandering, Chuck Schumer. Yeah. Apparently, uh, as we're as we're speaking, Chuck Schumer just said on the Senate floor, "What an absolute fraud the governor of Texas is." Yeah, let's have that argument. Let's let's have that argument, uh, Senator Fraud. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll be we'll be glad to have that argument. Uh, let's
1: let's you know what Chuck. Let's schedule a sense of the Senate on whether Greg Abbott is a fraud or not. Yeah. Let's put Mark Kelly on record. Let's put John Tester yeah, on
0: record. Where is Mark Kelly? Where is Mark Kelly? Mark I don't Kelly know. is a co-founder of of uh, of uh the Gifford's uh foundation which is supposed to be pushing uh gun control legislation. Where is yeah. he? Where has he been for the last 2 years? Where is he today? Yesterday? Right. Right. Nowhere. interesting that he is the most silent guy in the senate on the issue that supposedly most animates him and for good who, reason his wife got shot knew? i mean i don't blame him who <laughs> I don't blame knew? him for being animated by it but who knew that
1: that uh, that, that that arizona actually elected more so more so to the united states I, senate I,
0: I think that uh you know this is uh, part of joe biden's ropedope uh, uh, strategy in 2020 and mark kelly thinks it's going to work for him in arizona and i really don't think that that's the case um
1: i'm not thinking so either uh,
0: yeah i i mean it's interesting that mark kelly is the quietest senator (laughs) in washington on the issue that supposedly animates him the most
1: and and what does it say about our media boy you had manu raju sticking to sticking to uh, uh joe manchin yesterday all day long like 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 uh, fly on like a fly on on bull crap and phone him around saying, "What about the filibuster now? What about? The, are you willing to break the filibuster now? Look, we had a bunch of dead kids. You you can't show me four guns now. You you gotta bust the filibuster for guns. You you gotta and just shoving that mic in his face everywhere Joe Manchin went." Yeah. Where's Mano Ra- does Mono Raju know that Arizona actually has senators? I,
0: I, I am not certain that e- that um that Kelly's even in Washington. Do we know that Kelly's in Washington? No, we don't, do <laughs> no, we No, no. is.
1: do we do we not have a bunch of news media outlets that actually have congressional beat reporters?
0: I I, I guess the best that you can say is that Mark Kelly has become the senator's Waldo.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: The Senate's Waldo, I should say. The Senate's Waldo. He's Senator Waldo. Um and and I am I am I guess that the the media doesn't want to play where's Waldo, but that doesn't Why that in the us- world
1: is the most I mean, I don't care about Chris Murphy. Chris Murphy can get on his knees and beg his his fellow senators to do something on guns till so the cows come home. I don't care. Nobody cares. Right. Mark Kelly is actually the most interesting anti-gun candidate out there because of his narrative, because of his story, because of his wife's story. Right. So where is he on this issue? Why Why, why isn't there any media curiosity at all?
0: I, I, I don't I think know. that's stunning, isn't it? I think it is stunning. I think it's very stunning. Well, maybe by next week we'll find that question out, but we're out of time today. Dwayne, what's coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt Show? Well,
1: on the old program tomorrow, we have uh, a conversation with Dr. Larry Arne, like we normally do on Fridays. Uh Sunny Bunch will do movies. My guess is we are going to uh we, we may be doing the new Top Gun movie. I think that's that's on the uh, agenda. Interesting. Supposed supposedly it's it's pretty good from what I've
0: been told. I've heard, and I wasn't a huge fan of the first one, but I am actually kind of interested in seeing the second one.
1: I kind of am too. Um so that will be on. Plus, you know, God only knows what else we're gonna get into. Um, uh, it, it's it's almost it's almost painful to cover Joe Biden these days, um, uh, especially after when he uh, and Kamala Harris did their executive order signing yesterday and said uh, uh, the Republicans never even offered any meaningful gun re- or, or police uh, reform legislation, and I'm. I'm looking around, going. They know Tim Scott's in the Senate, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So oh, well. we're gonna. It's just gonna be up, basically about the news. Um, we're we're gonna be kind of w- winging our way uh, from west to east. Hugh's leaving the Salem managers meeting, going back to DC, and uh, I'm sure whatever pops in the news is what we're gonna be covered first thing.
0: All right. That's coming up tomorrow morning on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Be sure to tune in at 6 a.m. Eastern time, 5 a.m. in God's time zone, 3 a.m. on the left coast. And if you remember the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E dot com, you can be uh, a viewer of the Hugh Hewitt Show. So be sure to tune in there. Dwayne, General Patterson, thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you again next week, sir. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me is my good friend Stephen Shear, uh, Professor Emeritus at Car- Carleton College in uh, Minnesota. Spit it out, Ed. Carleton, <laughs> Carleton. There's Stephen, um, who is also the co-editor of a new book called "The Trump Effect." It just came out last month.
3: Yes, yeah, we do a, a stereo effect
0: here. Yeah, yeah. That? I think I think <laughs> when you're talking, you hold yours up. When I'm talking, I'll hold I'll hold it up for you. The Trump Effect. Disruption and its consequences in US politics and government. This is a nice collection of essays that uh, tackle uh, a number of different issues. And of course, you and your co editor, Todd Eberly, have your own essays in here. It's uh, actually Mm -hmm. you bookend it. Todd opens it up and you finish it off. Um, First off, congratulations. Obviously, this is not your first book, Stephen. You've written a number of books, but uh, written or or, or edited in a number of books. And, um, you know, What do you think? Is it too soon to tell what the Trump effect is? Because Trump's really kind of still in the mix. I mean, I find it kind of interesting that that maybe we're not through the
3: entire Trump cycle yet. Well, we're not through the entire Trump cycle, but we already know that he had a big effect on the national political system and the operation of the presidency. And there's a lot of information in the various chapters about that. I mean, think of how the national media has changed in response to Trump uh i don't think it's changed for the better i don't entirely blame trump for that but uh there's that uh, we now have uh the impeachment process as a routine procedure of national government apparently that's new um we have a very different coalitional framework in the republican party and I also think that we're seeing the Democratic Party move to the left in response to uh, Trump. And so there are a whole bunch of things going on here that Trump had started that are far from finished.
0: Right. and I mean, absolutely. We can take a look at the Trump presidency, even if there's another Trump presidency. We can still take a look at the one presidency, yeah. uh, you know, more than a year afterwards to see what the at least the immediate impact to American politics and international politics. Are. Yes and uh, you know that those are the those are the bookends actually of this of this piece todd starts it off with uh, trust and anger in the trump era you end it with challenging the world trump's foreign policy let's start yeah. with you because you're here and <laughs> that way we can talk to, that way we can talk bad about todd cuz he's not here but um <laughs> no he's
3: a fine man i know let he, let he's me, he's a fine guy let stand up for todd
0: <laughs> <laughs> well let's start with foreign policy because um I think that there's a key domestic policy issue here that is, is really a missing piece in Joe Biden's foreign policy, which is energy production. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about it, not, it's not easy to just simply divide things between domestic and yeah. and, and foreign because they impact each other. And I think right. yeah. we're seeing that right now.
3: Right. Well, political scientists use the term intermestic <laughs> for policies like that. They're international and domestic. And it's very clear that, uh, oil prices are a big example of that. We should note that, uh, President Biden yesterday in Asia said that we are in the midst of an incredible transformation to new energy that, uh, <laughs> high gas prices are part of. Uh, that's the first time he's really explicitly talked about the glory of high, uh, high gas prices. And uh, that will come back to on it.
0: Right, yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I wrote about that today. I mean, this is going to go up in a day or two, but um, I wrote about that today on Tuesday about this notion that we're going through an incredible transition to a glorious new future, you know, with uh, (laughs) less reliance on fossil fuels, um, which politically is actually pretty stupid because it makes it look like he's doing it on purpose. I'm not sure what the idea was behind that. Now, I've been arguing all along that it was on purpose, right? Because this was part of the point, you know, you yes. Um, it was pointed out to me because I, I didn't include it in my analysis today. It was included. It was um, Stephen Chu was pointed out to me afterwards, mm-hmm. said you needed to get gas prices around six or seven bucks a gallon. This is back you know when he was working with um, in the Obama administration. Right. And, and in fact, that was sort of a deliberate policy was to was to do that, at least for him. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when he said that, it kind of backfired on him and they 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 backpedaled away from that. But here's Joe Biden embracing that. And I mean, that type of price increase for oil is strategically incoherent when you're trying to when you're trying to clamp down on Russia and Iran to large scale producers of oil. Um, Right. So you have a strategic incoherence that we really didn't have in the Trump administration. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
3: Well, first of all, I, Trump viewed gas prices as a tool of foreign policy and domestic energy production as a way to increase America's power in the international system by becoming less reliant on Russia and Iran and on countries like Venezuela um, and uh, also helping to keep the American economy growing and uh, uh, prosperity widespread in the country. Uh, a prosperous, large, growing country with low energy prices has a bigger footprint on the international stage than one that is suffering like it is now.
0: And again, I mean, again. Th- th- this is part of, I think, an undersold um, feature of the Trump presidency, which was mm-hmm. that sort of strategic vision. and. and and you had a strategic vision too in, in foreign policy, which was the Abraham Accords, which I think was probably his most successful strategic yeah. foreign policy initiative, which was, yeah. to, which was to tear up the Iran deal, go very hard against Iran in order to rally the Sunni nations into an alliance with, e- with, with, uh, with Egypt, excuse me, with Israel, right. um, which is succeeding and still paying off today. Um, yeah. And, and that has strategic implications as well.
3: Yeah. Oh, I think so. Uh, the the complication for Trump has always been his personality. That is, there may have been a strategic vision and a reasonably sound execution of aspects of it. But Trump himself managed to obscure that with his constant battles with everybody who came within his line of sight. <laughs> and so I think you just that's one real reason, Ed, why Trump doesn't get a lot of credit. For uh, the results of his own presidency, he's done a good job of distracting people from his accomplishments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is true about Putin too, right? I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, one of the big issues with with and one of the big frustrations I had actually with Donald Trump, both before, both during his campaign and during his presidency was the fact that he was sort of following in a grand American tradition of really not getting what Vladimir Putin was about. I mean, this is Barack Obama went through this. George W. Bush went through this. And I was kind of hoping that um, we might have woken up. And perhaps he woke up a little quicker than either of those two did during during the course of the presidency.
3: But even even up to Helsinki, I mean – Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, he – yeah, go on. well. Again, this is a perfect example of the contrast that I just mentioned. Uh, Trump would often talk and uh, uh, about Putin in a personal way—that how much he liked him, et cetera—and this actually opened him up to attacks. But if you look at the actual policies of right. the Trump administration, uh, he was quite tough on Russia and Putin, and Putin was certainly aware of that. But again. What Trump was saying and what he was doing were often two different things. And he distracted people from his policies with a lot of his really unnecessary verbiage about Putin and other men.
0: Right. And I think that um, th- that's part of why you need to have sort of this settlement of the Trump legacy or the Trump effect. I mean, the Trump legacy is yeah. still being written, but the Trump effect, I think, is it, this is one reason why it's good to
3: have this book coming out now. Right. Is well, to, and is also, to reset it, me, those. yeah, let me just say this, that I think that the contrast uh, in American conditions under Biden compared to under Trump helps to illustrate the Trump effect pretty boldly. And uh, in that way, I think we'll get people to figure out what some of the actual policy consequences of his presidency were. Um there's, you know, there's so much noise, so much social media, so many brick bats being thrown all the time that we often forget the facts on the ground. But the contrast between America now and America two years ago uh, is pretty obvious to a lot of citizens right now. Well, it certainly is. I mean,
0: certainly economically speaking, it's it's uh, it is that way. Um, we're going to get to the you know domestic policy, obviously, here. Um, but I think it's just in terms of strategic direction too. I mean, it's yeah, and and yeah. look, that's what you hash out in elections. And what you can say in the 2020 election, as much of a mess as the 2020 election was, mm-hmm. is that it really was about two different visions for 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 strategic direction. Um, mm-hmm. and Biden narrowly beat Trump on that. But I would argue that uh, well, you narrowly beat Trump in the in in the election. But I would argue that there really isn't really a mandate in that in terms of strategic mm-hmm. direction there was really just a mandate to to get rid of the chaos and and you mm-hmm. guys deal with chaos and these issues here or in, in these essays here I should say in the Trump right, effect right, and right. and why that probably ended up being the decisive factor in 2020
3: oh yes i think that's very clear um Uh, I have an essay coming out in another book about the future of the Republican Party called The Elephant in the Room. And the title of my essay is Choose Your Battles Wisely, Trump Did Not. (laughs) And I begin with a quote from Sun Tzu, which said, if you cannot win a battle, do not fight it. (laughs) This is a lesson Donald Trump has yet to learn. (laughs) And uh, because he was fighting all these battles, uh, people, I think, got A real battle fatigue from his presidency. And I think what people are facing now is uh, uh, the fact that Joe Biden, the personality, may be what they voted for, but they have a bunch of policies right now that aren't working very well that Joe Biden had been endorsing for many months before the election. It's just that a lot of people did not uh, vote on policy grounds. I know uh, John McLaughlin. Uh, Trump's pollster did a post-election poll and found that 54% of those who were voters approved of Trump's policies, but he only got 47% of the vote. Well, I think we know why that happened.
0: Right, right, indeed. Um, now, an important part of you—you you alluded to this
3: actually in um,
0: in in what you said at the beginning. An important part of Trump's legacy, if you will, or at least the legacy from his first, well, from his term in office, might be his first term, might be his only term, yeah. um, is were are his battles with Congress? This is a president who battled Congress more than any other president over a similar uh, time frame. And I'm not talking about on policy. I'm talking about to stay in office. Went through, mm-hmm. he, he was impeached twice, went through two Senate trials, uh, was not removed in either one of them. Um, and really um, kind of almost bookended his presidency because he came into office with the Russia collusion uh thing and um, they impeached him over uh, issues related to that the first time around and the second time around of course it was over the January 6th riot um, right what is what is the what is the Trump effect of those battles with Congress what do you think the effect is going to be on executive legislative re- relations or at least what's well, how is that
3: positive yeah. in
0: the Trump effect well
3: well, uh, I think we're going to have an acid test of this probably after the 2022 elections, because it's likely we'll have at least one chamber of the U.S. Congress in Republican hands. And the question is, will they, uh, approach Biden in the way Democrats approached Trump in the second half of his term, which was total war, essentially. Now, Trump invited total war with his rhetoric. Uh, Biden does not invite total war in quite the same degree because For one thing, he's not active on social media in the way Trump, uh, Trump was and is. Um, so, uh, we have now for the first time since the 19th century, uh, resorted to the impeachment process three times in the last 25 years, never removing a president from office. Um, I'm sure there will be pressure, uh, within the Republican caucus in the House and perhaps the Senate to consider an impeachment process for, uh, for um, President Biden. And that would be a Trump effect. Well, yeah,
0: I, I think that there has been a cheapening of the impeachment process. And I, and I do want to correct something I just said is it was the first impeachment wasn't really directly related to the Russia collusion thing. It was U- sort of Ukraine. indirectly.
3: Yeah.
0: It yeah. was sort of Ukraine. indirectly. It was, it was Ukraine, which kind of came up as you know, it, it got blown up bigger because, I think, of the Russia uh, collusion thing. I think people were looking for an excuse to go after him at that point, but it wasn't directly related to it. So I I, I do want to correct that. But but I, I think that we've cheapened impeachment here, at least in terms of the presidency. You know what's one interesting effect of this is I haven't seen any uptick in impeachments yet, I should say. Yeah. Of lesser officials in either the executive or judicial branches, which is, of course, it's a tool that Congress can can use in those, for people in those branches who are, um, you know, who are Congress right. confirmable, Senate confirmable uh, people. Although we have heard rumblings about um, a, a possible impeachment process against Alejandro Mayorkas at right. DHS for uh, for incompetence and dereliction of duty, so we may see more effect, uh, more Trump effect uh, in this in this
3: yeah. regard, right? Right. Exactly. So Uh, the other thing to watch with Congress going forward is whether the Republican Party ever becomes uh, the fiscally conservative party again. Trump really (laughs) did change, uh, change that within the party and within Congress Uh, there. I have a quote. Well, actually, now I can segue into my three Trump books here. The first one Todd and I wrote was early in the Trump presidency. About his first six months, right? We like that. We like that oval office picture, asserted. <laughs> and very uh, nice. We wrote this. If you want the big picture as to how American politics has changed to permit Trump, Trump did not create the movement behind him. He simply got in front of something that had been brewing for decades. And uh, how Trump happened: system shock, decades in the making. Talks about that. Um, but in this, in this book. I have a quote from Trump where he is asked about the future budget deficit. And he says, well, you know, that uh, uh, he's told Social Security may go bankrupt, Medicare as well. And he says, yeah, but that won't happen while I'm president, which was true. (laughs) Of course, now with inflation, (laughs) it may happen in the second term if he gets one. Right. Uh, but. He very clearly paid very little attention to the budget deficit, despite the fact in 2016 saying it would be very easy to balance the budget. He could do it in the first year in office. Well, that didn't. No, no. <laughs>
0: no you, can balance you, can balance. you can balance the budget. But, you know, it's this
3: sort of wild rhetoric that he traffics in routinely that, you know. Puts people's hair on fire.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, you can certainly drop a balanced budget, but nobody will vote for it in Congress because uh, nobody takes it seriously. Republicans don't take it seriously. I mean, I mean, honestly, you know, uh, Rand Paul drew up a ba- balanced budget uh, one yes. year and yeah. and it got one vote, Rand Paul's. So that's it. It's the only <laughs> vote it got. I think Mike Lee said nice things about it, but I, nobody else voted for it as far as, as far as I remember, nobody else voted for it. It didn't go anywhere. Right. So what about right. the, what about the Trump effect on the media and coverage of oh. presidents? Now, this is a oh. an, uh, this is an essay by Diana Owen from Georgetown University, uh, which right. is actually in the middle of its own little uh, media management. Oh no, issue. kidding! Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, Diana yeah. Owen doesn't have anything to do with that. I'm just mentioning. No, no, it. No, no, no.
3: But, but yeah. um, she's a model of probity and decorum.
0: I would she's imagine because she's she's, <laughs> she's in the book "The Trump Effect," which you should buy. But um, I mean, I think if you if you think about Trump, if you think about a Trump effect, right? I mean, I yeah. think that that's the one that people are going to land on the most, which is right. the presidential right. relationship with the media. And and I'll, I I you know you're a Minnesotan I'm a former Minnesotan cuz I got yeah. smart and I moved to Texas you you haven't gotten that smart yet but you're going to get there ah. um <laughs> but we had a taste of this um in Minnesota with Jesse Ventura you know where he issued oh, the press okay. passes that had the jackal picture on them and I mean and and he ah. he sort of created that yeah. model Donald Trump right. just really uh, made it his own I'm not saying that Donald Trump you know, uh, consciously copied it from Jesse Ventura. But I mean, the similarities are are, are very, very broad in this here. Right.
3: Well, you know, uh, you go from Perot and, you know, in 92 and 96 and 98, you have Ventura. And then the next uh, uh, incarnation of that, I'd say, is Trump in 2016. So there's clearly widespread disaffection with the media and with American institutions. And it's gotten to the point where people want uh, a fighter, someone who will really take no prisoners. Um, I think a lot of, of Trump supporters, when they view his battles with the media, uh, are thinking in the same way that Lincoln thought about Grant. You know, I can't spare this man. He fights. <laughs> right. And a lot of Republicans believe that. And Trump, of course, uh, uh, that was his M.O. for many, many years fighting in the media. Now, there were trends leading in that direction. The media was fragmented. Bias was becoming more explicit in various parts of the media. Social media was fragmenting the audience and allowing people to get in their own uh, biased bubbles and stay there. And Trump uh fits into that niche very well by Popping bubbles that he doesn't like, and building bubbles that he does like with his own media ability because he's charismatic, he's interesting uh just people pay attention to him he He was quite a very good performer uh and he spent decades perfecting his act right right before he ever ran for president, and all of that made him a, a media figure who could uh affect the media in big ways and I think uh, ultimately, you can say, yes, Trump did encourage the media to behave, uh, in a less reliable, uh, fashion, uh, with more bias and, uh, and so forth. But the media took the bait. And now we have, you know, uh, we have, you can almost pick a media outlet and I can tell you what frames they will use any given day because their biases are now much more explicit. And I think that's, uh, Trump accelerated that process by yep. uh, going after media he found as hostile, as hostile. I, so it was a pre-existing yeah. process that he accelerated. And he did that in a lot of ways. He accelerated the impeachment process. Uh, he uh, accelerated America's assertiveness on the international stage. He, he accelerated media bias in response to him. Uh, And he he certainly accelerated partisan polarization. You know, the idea that it's now the case that a large number of Republicans do not want their daughter or son marrying a Democrat or vice versa. You know, this has been growing and Trump encourages that. Well, I, you know,
0: again, it's big effect. It's, I'm not sure if it's a chicken or egg thing, and I think you guys are, 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 you have a nuanced take to that too, right? Did Trump didn't generate this, right? Trump accelerates this. Trump, Trump is, Trump is both a cause and a product of these, of these, um, what I would call, you know, disaffections with institutions. He's both a cause and a product of that.
3: Yes. Well, the term accelerant is used by David Hopkins in his excellent chapter on how polarized we are. And he argues, in fact, that this has been building, you know, for decades. Right. And Trump accelerated. And I think you can see that happening in a wide variety of areas of American politics. Now, he is a change agent, but he's not creating new phenomena. He is accelerating pre-existing phenomena and creating uh, in operation, a very different American political system. So he has had big effect. Absolutely. I'm not, not disputing the effect,
0: but I, I, a lot of people who want to point the finger at Donald Trump for some of these effects really yeah. are missing the point that he is... He is the culmination or was a culmination, because yes. I don't think we're done yet. But he is a More culmination. More culminations
3: are coming, Ed. Just yeah. thought I'd tell you. More culminations
0: <laughs> are coming down the pike. Maybe Trump himself, again, being one of them. But um just yeah. depending on how, how the um how the election cycles go here. But um mm-hmm. but I think it's important to to understand that. You know, the reason why we have Trump is because these things were already in motion. You know, I I talked to Bernie Goldberg and, you know, Bernie Goldberg is, I mean, he's wrote the book bias, you know, seminal book. He's a very nice guy. He's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am, I am proud if somewhat presumptuous to call him a friend. Um, (laughs) But he's, he's been certainly been a a good friend to me in, in, uh, over the, over the, uh, you know, over the years. And I was speaking to him just a few weeks ago on this podcast uh, about you know, the nature of editorial bias in, mm-hmm. in the press, because if you read bias, Bernie lays out, a, which was published, I think in 99 or 2000, Bernie makes right. an excellent case that this is a, a sort of institutional bias that the, mm-hmm. that the, the, the left-leaning media isn't, it was basically an institutional bias because it's editors were coming out of a particular political uh, formation. And so it was, it wasn't a deliberate, Attempt to skew the news it was just the fact that you had basically a mono um a monolithic view of a monoculture a monoculture among editors yeah. you know leading editors yeah. at, at all the media outlets they're all part of the same culture, so they're all doing they all see things exactly the same. I asked him about that, and Bernie says. You know, I don't think it's that anymore. I think it really is deliberate. <laughs> it's, 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 I yeah. think the nature of it has really changed in the 20 years since I wrote the book. Back then, that was really the case. But today, I think what's really the case is they're cooking things and they're cooking it deliberately.
3: Yeah. Well, but also, I think Trump called them out and that caused them to become more deliberate. You know, yes. Uh, Trump, yeah. Trump said, look at what you're doing. And then they became defensive and, and doubled down, essentially. Uh, and now it's, I think, more explicit than it's ever been, you know, and it's very easy to see.
0: Well, you know, how's a, a good way to get around that, though, Stephen, mm. is you read a book called The Trump Effect, <laughs> Disruption and Its oh, Consequences. You, you mean this book? I mean, oh, you know, you've got the same book. Look at that. The Trump, <laughs> of, we both are holding up the same book, which is available on Amazon and all places where you can find fine books. Um Edited by Stephen Shear and Todd Eberly, and uh, Stephen, of course, is professor emeritus at Carleton College in Minnesota. I got to write. I got to write that time. Um, and where else can they find you? I mean, I'm not sure if you. Uh, you know, we've been friends for a while. I'm not even sure if you have your own website or <laughs> what you've got going on, Stephen. That tells you. That tells uh, you how good I do my research. There you go.
3: <laughs> well, I'm on Twitter, but I don't tweet. I just read on Twitter. So <laughs> there you go.
0: Because you're so, smarter than um, I am.
3: Yeah, well, you know, and I write the occasional op-ed. But, you know, I generally uh, stay in the trenches and don't put my head up.
0: <laughs> yeah, you are—you exactly. do actually show There's up. There's a on lot load. of fire out there. <laughs> yeah, you do actually do a, a number of um, uh, on-air analyses for Twin Cities Media. So sometimes you'll find yeah, some on, on the air I out do. there. But, you know, go to go get the Trump effect. And while you're at Amazon, take a look at the other books that, uh, that uh, Stephen has either written or edited. Usually both. Right. By the uh,
3: way. <laughs> pre- preview of coming attractions. Uh, the elephant in the room is coming out with a lot of very interesting essays about the future of the Republican Party. And uh, also, uh, we uh, uh, David Hopkins of Boston College and I will be doing the 14th edition of Presidential Election, the number one selling college book on that time on that subject. There and so go. we'll be covering 2020 thoroughly in that and preparing for 2024. Ho, ho,
0: ho. so on that, <laughs> on that note, before I let you go, you saw, um, you saw that Kellyanne Conway's book. Um, uh, yeah. Basically says, you know, give it up. Trump actually did lose the election. Uh, I'm not yeah. surprised to see that coming from Kellyanne. Cause she was trying to get that message out in the, in the weeks after that election. Do you think it's, I mean, just really quickly, do you think that that's really going to have much impact
3: on, on uh, Probably not, but I, I also think that she did try and bring facts and reality to that White House, but at times it was an uphill struggle. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, you've got, uh, what is it, 200, 2,000 mules out there, a movie that says it's all booked. Uh, well, I think, movie, I think the movie I think the movie
0: takes a position that that there was a lot of irregularities that were going on there. Oh, they're trying well, to send they're, yeah. they're try, it's more trying to it, it's more about ballot harvesting and the and the irregularities around ballot harvesting. So, yeah. Right.
3: Which is a worthy right, but topic. It does it. does encourage, uh, you know, and Trump actually introduced the movie at Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, he, he's going to continue to make that argument. but. I do think voters are going to be looking for a 2025 agenda, not a bunch of 2020, uh, resentments, yep. you know, in a candidate. Yeah. And, I think you're uh, right about that. Yeah. And so, uh, there may be an opening for another Republican other than Trump and Trump would definitely have to change his tune in order to meet that need amongst many voters. All right. Well, Stephen Shearer, you know where to
0: get the book, Amazon and all all other fine book outlets, The Trump Effect Disruption and Its Consequences uh, in U.S. Politics and Government. That's the cover right there. You can go pick that up. Stephen, thanks so much for being here today. And we'll talk to you again soon. Live long and prosper, Captain. (laughs) Live long and prosper, my friend. (laughs) Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. Don't go away. We're coming back. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. I'm really pleased to be talking today with Paul Mieringoff, somebody who I've had a a very long blog relationship with. We've met a couple of times. He's a a, a great guy. Uh, And he's doing something new with Bill Otis over at uh, Substack called Ringside at the Reckoning. Ringside at Ringsideatthereckoning.substack.com. And they're already off to a fast start. I mean, Paul, first off, welcome to the show. And uh, when did you get started with Ringside at the Reckoning?
2: Well, thanks, Ed. I, I want to say our relationship goes way back and we were on once together. I don't know if you remember back in 2004, I think it was, I was visiting my Powerline colleagues in Minnesota and we went on something called The Patriot. And I, I knew who you were, but I kept thinking every every topic came up. I said, this guy's knocking it out of the park on everything. So I, um, that was the, kind of the beginning of our relationship. It was As far as Ringside at the Reckoning goes, I left Powerline in in February and um, really wanted to kind of stay in the game, wanted to write. Didn't mind taking a few months off to after 20 years of almost nonstop writing. But I wanted to get back in the game with my friend Bill Otis. And uh, so we started this thing on Substack. I don't, didn't know much about Substack, but I'm, I'm learning. It's a pretty cool medium and uh, gives me the opportunity to write about the subjects I really am most interested in, um, in particular, the war on standards, which has been an ongoing ongoing crusade that's gotten some traction on the left, uh, and it's, I think is now starting to lose some traction. Bill Otis specializes in criminal law, and most of his blogging so far has been on that, but he has a lot to say about other topics as well. So it's just been great, a lot of fun, After 20 years to start a new venture, I mean, really couldn't be happier.
0: Right, and it's a great pairing, and, uh, and Paul, just in case people aren't, and by the way, I do remember that 2004 uh, time we got to hang out together, and uh, believe me, I was... Um, I, I I look back on that fondly, and I can't believe it's been eighteen years. Oh my god, uh, it's just awful. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: You look you look younger though than you did back then.
0: Oh bless you, sir. You're my new favorite podcast guest. Uh, you should tell people a little bit about your legal background though, too. What 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 it was that you did other than blogging, all the really important work that you did other than blogging. Yeah.
2: Well, I was just, a, I started out at, at the EEOC of all places, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission back when I was a liberal. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of some of the things I did there, less proud of some of the others. Um, the law changed a lot while I was there, some for the better, some some not. And then I went into private practice and started out kind of defending the cases that I was bringing at the EEOC and then branched out into more general litigation, corporate litigation, defending class actions on all kinds of fronts and that sort of thing. Bill Otis has, I think, a more stellar background. He was um, a prosecutor at the Department of Justice and served in the Bush, the, the Bush 41 White House Office of Legal Counsel, where among other things, he worked on the Weinberger pardon. Probably the, one of the few times that he's been uh, soft on crime. <laughs> no, just, just <laughs> kidding. Bill. Just kidding, Bill, if you're watching. Um, and uh, he, he was a, High high-ranking legal officer at the Drug Enforcement Administration. And uh, so he, uh, unlike me, he really knows what he's talking about when he writes about criminal law. So I'm kind of happy to hand that beat off to him. I was holding it down at Powerline, but I think Bill's Bill's got it now. But between us, we have a pretty, you know, a pretty varied legal background, both civil and criminal. And I hope it can come to bear uh, effectively on on um, Ringside at the Reckoning.
0: Well, like I said, ringsideatthereckoning.substack.com, and it's off to a fast start. So if you haven't seen it yet, you should get over there and take a look at it because there is really some first-class writing going on over there and some great topics. And uh, Paul's most recent one is about Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was just recently confirmed to the uh, Supreme Court. And uh, you write that she is uh, has a unusual career trajectory (laughs) for a Supreme court justice. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, it's the most unusual. I think right now among the, among the current justices, probably Elena Kagan's got the most unusual, um, career trajectory, never having been a judge prior to being, uh, the Supreme court. But, um, Tell us a little bit about your assessment of Ketanji Brown Jackson, um, her her confirmation, and most, mostly her career and her, her credentials for this position.
2: Right. Well, well, Justice Kagan at least has always been a star wherever she was. Whatever else, one yeah. Can true. Right. Yes. Um, that's not apparently the case with with uh, soon to be Justice Jackson. Uh, I have a source who I who I trust, reliable guy. And he was uh, a partner at the law firm where she broke in. Um, she broke in after a very, you know, touching all the right bases, in fact, being a Supreme Court justice. And that's the fast track to, at, at a minimum, a, a good law firm. And then from there to, you know, all sorts of wonderful things. But she, according to my source, crashed and burned at the law firm. She, she left one step ahead of possibly, quite possibly being fired and took a much lesser position as a kind of a media, mediation law firm, a firm that settles disputes. And God knows we need dis- dispute resolution, but it's not usually where Supreme Court clerks end up. And then from there, she became a staff attorney on the Sentencing Commission. So it was a really downward tr- trajectory. And um, as Ed Whalen, one of my favorite legal bloggers pointed out, that would normally raise yellow flags. But she she explained it by saying that, you know, that she wanted to go on the the mommy track, um, take a little time off to be with a family, which would be great, except that, according to my source, who I trust, she left one step ahead of probably being fired. So the real explanation would appear to be just not cutting it at this law firm, prestigious law firm, as opposed to just wanting to spend more time with the family. So, you know, since then, I mean, eventually she became a judge, which I'm told shocked and amazed the partners at her <laughs> law firm, including the liberal ones, Um and as a judge, her writing has been—you know—I I haven't really studied it. I have to—I have to be upfront about that. But those who have, including you know, a legal writing guru uh, of of high reputation, found it to be uh, pretty inadequate. He eventually took the post down, uh, but but Ed Whalen Whel- preserved it. Um She, you know, she just just doesn't really write very very scholarly, stellar opinions, which was what you would expect and hope for from a Supreme Court justice, whether she's liberal, conservative, or somewhere in the middle.
0: You know, and I think that I, I think that this is an issue of vetting. And I would say that vetting has not been a particularly strong suit of the last couple of, well, really the last three administrations. Um, but they put Ketanji Brown Jackson in at the um, DC, I believe it was the DC Court of Appeals, and right. it was and it was clear that when you do that, you're 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 seeding the ground for future Supreme Court justices, right? I mean, you can pull them out of other other uh, circuit courts, you or you know appellate courts, other circuit appellate courts. You can even pull them from the ranks of federal judges. And there were a couple, I think, in um, in the supposedly short list at the end of Biden's um, appointment here of of Jackson. Uh, that may have been stronger actually in terms of being jurists, but once you've once you've made that decision, and especially since it was really just a year ago, I'm not even sure it was quite a year ago obviously they were thinking they were they were plotting a a a a longer career for Jackson, and I think that they may have been stuck with this choice on that basis.
2: Yeah, that's one possibility. In my post, I raised another possibility, which is that just, they just wanted a safe vote. Yeah, So they, they didn't really want someone who would think deeply about issues, but someone who would reflexively vote with the left. There was a candidate who was a justice on the California Supreme Court named Leandra Kruger who was a star by all accounts in the solicitor general's office. And I think was maybe the principal deputy solicitor general argued 12 cases before the Supreme court and fit the bill as an African-American female. But, you know, they may have thought that she was too independent minded. There was the, the, I think the just, the judge that you may have alluded to was a South Carolina judge named Childs who had support from Lindsey Graham uh, and uh, uh, Clyburn, the, you know, the, the, Yeah, Clyburn pushed pushed hard for Childs, right? Yeah. And he's a guy who put Joe Biden back in the ballgame in South Carolina primary. So with that backing, you would have thought that she was a a strong candidate. But there was talk that, oh, she had worked as uh, defended uh, labor employment dispute cases for for corporations in her practice. I just think they wanted someone that they could really count on. They didn't want the intellectual firepower. Elena Kagan um, supplies that. And they can probably find someone else in the next ten years who might also fit that bill, and so I just th- think they may have just wanted a reliable vote um and and um you know someone who was had a great life story that seems to be a big deal now, although I'm not sure what's what's what all what's great about her life story, but you know there are articles about that, right so you know there there she is, you know Paul I think that that's a criticism that really
0: can be extended uh. I I mean, I honestly think that that's been a criticism that could be applied for the last 30 years. And the reason why is mostly because Republicans have gotten burned on these things, right? I mean, you can look at Elena Kagan, who's actually written some interesting opinions, who's actually written some heterodox opinions, right? It's kind of like Neil Gorsuch, right? Sometimes Neil Gorsuch is uh, originalist slash libertarian enough to where he kind of gets crosswise with where conservatives would prefer that he goes. But I don't think that there's... He's not a David Souter, right? He's not somebody who's turning liberal. He's just sort of... Absolutely not. ...venting his libertarian uh, streak, more or less. Um, And Kagan, I think, is somebody who's interesting. Breyer is also somebody who's interesting. I'd say Sotomayor is not, um, in in terms of who's on the liberal bench. But, I mean, you've got... The same sort of impulse, especially after Souter, especially after Kennedy, and maybe even especially after Roberts, <laughs> you know, we're, we're Republican presidents. were looking just for somebody who's going to be reliable, somebody who's not going to grow in office. And I'd argue that that's almost uh, entirely attributable to the to the warping of the judiciary in the post-Roe environment. Right. Where it's not about who comes up with the best you know, who has the best judicial mind, who has the best, you know, legally discerning mind, it has become a super legislature and presidents are nominating safe votes in a super legislature. Hopefully Dobbs is going to reverse that or at least start the process of reversing that. But I mean, that's really what's been going on here. And so uh, nominating uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, regardless of um, of her qualifications, really shouldn't come as a surprise, right?
2: No, I don't. I I think she was the, she was the smart money bet all along, um, and and for the reasons you you suggest. So I'm almost kind of re- reminded. I can't remember who
0: the justice was, but I'm I, I remember Nixon nominated somebody. The Supreme Court had to be withdrawn later on, and um, was it Roman Ruska that said, um, uh, you know, everybody deserves represent. I, I'm I'm really paraphrasing here, but everybody deserves repre- representation, even mediocrities. Um- yes. <laughs>
2: That was that was uh, uh, Justice Carswell or Judge Carswell. Judge Carswell, the, yes. The second attempt, he originally nominated Clement Hainsworth, who I actually argued a case or two before in the Fourth Circuit, perfectly fine nominee who was shot down. So he said, well, I'll show them. And he nominates Judge Carswell. And then Ruska defends it on the grounds that mediocrity deserves representation, mm-hmm. just like he said. <laughs>
0: One of the more amusing uh, anecdotes uh, of, of judicial nominations. We don't have too many of them in the last 30 years. You have to go back a little ways to find those. But um, yeah, Carswell didn't make it either. Um, and, and, and really, honestly, for good reason. But, um, so I, I'm kind of thinking that if Alito's draft, the leaked draft, holds, and you undo Roe, and of course, Casey and the other thing, you know, Doe, Casey, the other uh, antecedents there. Uh, the the pressure on the court to be legislators is going to be lessened somewhat, maybe in the long run, maybe not in the short run. And so maybe you start looking for more, you know, legal stars rather, and, and really honest, an honest... Um, affiliation to a certain judicial philosophy rather than just looking for the safe votes but i i think the safe vote thing is something that that both parties have have just learned that that's uh, that's how you do this at this point in time
2: yeah yeah i think so and i'm i'm not as maybe not as optimistic as you that it's going to change uh as a result of the 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 dobbs decision but but you may be right
0: well, at least it's a, at least it would get them on the right path to that. And I think that that's what Alito is arguing in that draft. Mm-hmm. I, I, we don't even know how much of that draft is going to survive or even if that decision's going to survive. So right. we, yeah, we still have to wait for that. Uh but that brings us to another Paul Maringoff piece here at Ringside at the Reckoning.substack.com. Make sure you guys remember that Ringside at the Reckoning.substack.com, which is an unimpressive democratic bench and the reason that this caught my eye uh, first off, because I just enjoy your uh, everything that you and belotus are doing there. But also because I had just got done writing about the fact that Democrats are sort of stuck with Joe Biden in 2024, assuming he's upright and, you know, and breathing. They don't really have much of a choice because they don't really have any bench at all. And I, I was I was I I was. Uh, It it caught my eye how much you your thoughts paralleled mine on this.
2: Yeah, I mean the the Washington Post. I I based it on a Washington Post ranking of the top ten, and I compared it later in the Post to the Republicans' top ten. Which, trying to be as impartial as unbiased as I can, seemed much more impressive by any objective measure. But in the Post Post's uh, ranking, Biden was one, which you know, I guess. could be questioned but prob- but probably is right and then and then number 2 was not Kamala Harris but was Pete Buttigieg this guy is you know he's a you know he he punched above his weight in the in the democratic primaries but never got close to winning anything he's the mayor of a, a small a small city in, a relatively small city in Indiana and he's the part department head who presided over the um the the supreme cr- cr- chain the supply chain crisis, right. when he when he had time for it and wasn't on paternity leave. So for him to be like the, the, the best alternative to Joe Biden really caught my attention. But I couldn't find people on the list who were better alternatives. I think he's at least as viable as Kamala Harris at this point, probably more so. Further down the list, you have people like you know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> um, you know, the fact that H- she even made that list tells you how bad and, uh, she got in at number 10. Uh, but, you know, uh, and, and and your your senator, I guess, Amy Klobuchar. Not
0: anymore. Not anymore. I moved to Texas. But you know, I, I don't know that you know this, Paul. I moved to Texas last year. Oh, OK,
2: well, good for you. <laughs> your senator, your senator, Ted Cruz, um, made the made the Republican list, I think, at number seven. And I, I actually, Amy, is, you know, if, if the Democrats want to want to repeat of, um, you know, tw- 2020 without Joe Biden, that is a, a candidate who seems fairly innocuous. And 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 nice, although Biden has never struck me as nice, but and Klobuchar right. apparently isn't nice, but comes across that way. You know, Klobuchar might be might be the answer if they want to go down that path again. But overall, it's a very very unimpressive list. Well, I have to tell you about
0: Klobuchar because I've had a couple of actual personal interactions with Klobuchar, and she's actually I, I, and I should preface this also again by saying I didn't work for her, which was apparently the issue, right? Which was how <laughs> right. she handled her right. staff, but. I have to tell you the two times that I have had um, interactions with her personally, she's been very pleasant. She's um, almost to the point of um, uh, of uh, affectionate, um, and so she knows how to handle herself. Uh, you know, in, in that sense, she still got that Minnesota. My my feeling, Paul, is and this is no knock on Minnesotans, but you can't elect a Minnesotan to the presidency because they. Minnesota politicians don't succeed by by don't have a long a long uh, stretch of success if they're at all interesting or quirky, right, or or charismatic. You have to be sort of you have to be sort of quiet, sort of you know uh, technocratic, sort of uh, non assertive, and it just as a, a national campaign doesn't wear well on them. Amy Klobuchar is one example, Tim is another. Um, you know, as much as Hubert Humphrey was, uh, you know, genial and and cordial and and beloved, uh, he didn't win. Walter Mondale didn't win. Uh, I just <laughs> think, there's <something> <laughs> I think there's something about Minnesota. Think there's something about Minnesota candidates. It's just if you succeed in Minnesota, you're not going to succeed nationally.
2: Yeah, and I don't think Amy A- Amy Klobuchar would, but but I couldn't find anybody on the list uh, yeah. that that was more more plausible. They, they mentioned the governor of North Carolina, Cooper, who I don't know much about, but he has he has one in a red, slightly reddish state, so that that speaks, I guess, that speaks in his favor. But it was really an amazingly weak list,
0: a very weak list. And I will tell you, it's it's mainly a DC-centric list. The only two people who in there who aren't are um, um, uh, Roy Cooper, the 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 governor of North Carolina, that you just mentioned, and Gavin Newsom, who is governor of California. And he's somewhere about a half a mile to the left of Joe Biden. There's no way Gavin Newsom is going to be able to compete and win in a presidential election. When you take a look, though, at the Republican side, the thing that strikes me about this, and this is sort of what my thought process was, is that there are more people who are outside the beltway in the GOP that have at least a credible standing and some sort of national media presence. I mean, Nikki Haley was UN ambassador, but prior to that, she was a two-term governor. Um, You've got uh, Glenn Youngkin, who is the governor in Virginia, Ron DeSantis, obviously, and um, and governor of Florida. Chris Sununu is the governor in New Hampshire. You've got real outside the beltway people on that list who have real heft, who have uh, a real ability to sell themselves as not part of an establishment. Haley might have a little bit more difficult time with that. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I like Tim Scott. I think he's got a future. I think he kind of needs to run for governor at some point in order to, in order to access it. I I'm ambivalent about Ted Cruz cause I like him personally, but I'm, I'm not happy about the whole, uh, uh, challenging votes in the electoral college thing for a guy who models himself as a constitutional scholar. Um, I, I found that to be pretty constitutionally vacant. Um, but I think this is the piece that Democrats are missing. And, and I want to run this by you because I know that you're a thoughtful guy and you've been thinking about this, which is that Democrats are so locked into the Beltway and into sort of that urban slash academia establishment that they don't have anybody who can speak outside of that. And even, uh, you know, even when you're looking at this, Gavin Newsom doesn't speak outside of that. Roy Cooper, maybe barely. You really need somebody from, uh, from a red state. Like uh, uh, you know, uh, John Tester, I guess he's really he's really a Beltway choice as well. But um, there was a a Democratic governor in Man- Montana his his name escapes me at the moment. Oh, Steve Bullock, who did run right. in twenty twenty briefly. Right. Um, yeah. who would make a good choice
2: for that? Um, Andy Beshear, you know, even though he's a senator and or or, or was yep. is a congressman who may become a senator. But yep, probably won't. Actually has some has some ability to talk outside the Beltway, despite his long time in Washington. But I don't know that he's going to prevail in, in in that primary. But you're you know you're absolutely right. And um, you know I was reading an article in the Washington Post about what's going on in New York. Um, you know, with all these redistricting and and uh, Carolyn Maloney and and and, uh, and the guy with all the necks or Nadler. Nadler, yeah, Nadler, yeah, Nadler, and uh, all the chins. And and they were talking about you know how powerful they are in Washington and how Meeks, who's not I guess is not isn't going to avoid all that Gregory Meeks, they're, they're all like running these committees. I mean, basically they're trying to run um, you know Washington with with a bunch of New Yorkers and Nancy Pelosi. It's, it's just incredible.
0: Right. No. I, I and and I think that it's 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 that sort of top heavy and also aging leadership in the democratic party. I mean, if you take a look at this list. I'm going to go back to, um, your post at ringside at the Com, And, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you, you didn't mention Bernie Sanders, I guess because the Washington post didn't mention him, but he's coming up in that conversation. And the guy is older than Joe Biden is. Uh, huh. Elizabeth Warren is in her seventies. People were talking about Hillary Clinton again, although maybe the Sussman trial might finally put the kibosh on that. Yeah. um, and she's in her 70s. She's only uh, a couple of years younger than Donald Trump. And uh, I, I mean, th- it's, it, it's a collection of, you know, septuagenarians, octogenarians. These are this is this is not going to resonate. Republicans, by the way, should think about that one in terms of Donald Trump, too, which is that, you know, some of these people are just too damn old for this job. They're too damn old to run effectively for um, for president, too, and we really should be looking at the younger part of the bench here in order to in order to
2: sort of broaden the appeal. Yeah, you know, in, in that regard, I mean, Tom Cotton and, and Marco Rubio did, didn't even make the post-top ten list. I mean, two two senators who I think you know have have considerably more stature than well than probably than Amy Klobuchar right. and more, more so than Sherrod Brown who, of Ohio, who also made the list. And, you know, Cotton, I think really stood, did himself proud by not going down the Ted Cruz path when it came to the challenging the election. Um, there's a lot of integrity there. And even though he's, you know, he's in, inside the beltway now, he certainly knows how to relate outside the beltway and he's got the the background as a war, you know, of having fought in, for the U S in two different wars um, even though he leaving a position as a lawyer to do that, so I mean the fact that Tom Cotton didn't make the list. I think if he were a Democrat, which is hard to imagine, even though even though his parents were, at, everyone in Arkansas was at one time. But if Tom Cotton were a Democrat, I think he'd be way near the top of that list. I mean, Tom Cotton versus Pete Buttigieg?
0: Yeah, uh, I'll
2: take Cotton all day long. Right, v-
0: much more impressive and 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 tom cotton has has a natu- you know a national type of standing too so does marco rubio on the basis of his presidential run in, in you know in the 2020 cycle if nothing else but marco rubio has been you know he was, he was the most successful of the tea party candidates and that makes him at least a little different than the conservatives that preceded him the maga that came after so rubio actually does have an ability there to to at least argue that he's a, a bridge between the two, whether either side actually accepts him as such or something right. else. But <laughs> right. but he can at least make the claim, Paul. Yeah. All right. So um, you know, there's lots of other great stuff over at ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. And again, you should go over there just as as soon as you can and subscribe to this. Um you know, Bill Otis has a number of pieces. We're not really talking about Bill's pieces, but there's a, there's there there are some really good ones in here. And uh, you know, I, Bill Otis was talking about are we just as safe with criminal criminal justice reform, a topic which you've written about extensively as well. And um, and following the science right off the cliff, which was actually the piece that you and I started talking about. You know, discussing in a in a podcast, we haven't gotten to that yet. But you were talking about standards and 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 upholding standards. I think that what's gone on in this pandemic has eroded the standing of the people who are supposed to be applying standards so much that I, I'm not sure how you get back to a place where there's a set of standards that everybody can say is reliable.
2: Well, I think events I think events may may drive us back there and and may be starting to. That that's kind of the reckoning that I had in mind with ringside with a sort of the ambiguous title, Ringside at the Reckoning. I mean, crime is you know, criminal law standards, I think, are going to make a comeback as crime continues to plague us. I mean, I live in one of the most liberal counties in America, probably Montgomery County, Maryland, and my, my wife is on one of these neighborhood things, and everybody's complaining constantly about muggings and you know can't park at the mall anymore. I said to my wife, "Does that mean we have to walk there?" You know, <laughs> it's three miles away. Um, I, I think that's going to drive drive it back to, to some extent. Um, I'm hoping that the the one that always has bothered me the most is the the attack on um, school disciplinary standards. Um, you know, yep. blacks are disproportionately sent to the principal's office or sent home. That one really bothers me the most because how are you going to learn in, 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 when teachers can't uphold disciplinary standards? And and a lot of black teachers have complained about that. I don't know if that's going to make a comeback or not, but um, you know, I I, I think it, I think it will because. People are just going to get sick of, of, um, you know, their kids not being able to learn because, um, you know, all kinds of misbehavior and violence is tolerated at school. And we saw that in the Yunkin campaign, I think, um, out of, you know, in Herndon County, Virginia, especially. So I'm a little bit more optimistic than I than I was after writing about this for 10 years and seeing more and more disintegration and then seeing it become almost mainstream after the George Floyd killing. Uh, with this equity movement, whereby any standard, no matter how justified, is, is should be tossed if it has a disproportionate impact on a particular group. I, I think we may be coming back from that, but, you know, it, it all remains to be seen. And, you know, we'll be at ringside covering it, uh, The Reckoning, whichever way it goes.
0: Ringside at the com. They are indeed at the ringside of these, and you should subscribe right away. Paul, are you
2: on Twitter at all? No. Um, you're smart, you're wise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I am i am debating whether to go on and you know I, I was kind of writing free uh, at, at Powerline because my I guess my colleagues were were all on it, you know, and I'm debating whether to get back on, but I'm I'm leaning no. I just I just can't abide uh Twitter. Well, if if I'm sure he'll write about it if
0: he's going to go back on Twitter. So in the meantime, you just got to go to ringsideatthereckoning.substack.com. Paul Marengoff, it's so good to talk to you again, sir. Thank you so much. I'm hoping we get a chance to do this from time to time when the topics come up.
2: Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate this.
0: All right, Paul Marengoff, thank you so much. Stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show. Hey, folks, this is Ed Morrissey here. I wanted to say thank you for watching or listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. If you like what you watch or see, please be sure to subscribe to the channel on which you're watching or or listening to this, either YouTube or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Rumble, Town Hall Media Player. Be sure to subscribe at any and all of those places so that you can find out when the next Ed Morrissey Show podcast will be dropping. Thanks again and have a great week.